All right, we are on the topic of prayer this weekend, specifically united prayer. And so we're talking about uh, what, why is it important that we pray together, okay? Not just have an individual prayer life, but why is it, or is it important that we have united prayer, that believers gather together and pray with one another? Now, prayer is a big topic, and we could talk about hundreds of different things when it comes to prayer, and so in order to provide a little bit of focus, we're going to be looking in Matthew chapter 6 and 7. Uh, This is the Sermon on the Mount, and we are going to talk about aspects of prayer only that we find in the Sermon on the Mount to provide us uh, some boundaries for this topic this weekend. And so if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew 6 and 7. Uh, The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus covers a lot of different topics. There's there's some threads that run through the entire Sermon on the Mount, uh, but he he hits a lot of different topics. And then at the end, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, he says the following. We'll read this, and then I'll talk to you about my eight-year-old daughter's teeth. All right, you ready? Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount by saying this, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So Jesus teaches all of these different things in his Sermon on the Mount, and then looks at the crowd. So he would look at us at St. Charles, and Blackberry Creek, and Bartlett, and DeKalb. He looks at us and he says, okay, I've taught you. Now, here's what you need to know. If you just hear what I've taught, and you just nod in agreement, but you don't do anything about it, you're a fool. And you will reap no reward or no good consequences from this teaching. But if you hear it and actually make an effort to put it into practice in your life, your house will be built on a rock, a strong foundation. And that's what we're talking about this weekend. Before we even get to prayer, let's talk about point number one in your notes. Uh, my daughter, uh, eight years old, we, it took us a while to figure this out. Uh, one, the first thing we figured out about her teeth was she has too many. We're looking in her mouth and we're like, holy cow, there's way too many teeth in this girl's mouth. And on top of that, none of them were falling out. Her baby teeth were not falling out. So not only does she have too many of them, they didn't want to leave. So we take her to the pediatric dentist who also works in the field of orthodontics. Ortho meaning straight, dontics being dental, right? So teeth, so an orthodontist makes your teeth straight. So here we have this daughter who has way too many baby teeth, and they're not falling out, so the adult teeth can't, can't come in. And so uh, this man, this doctor, this dentist, is looking at my daughter's mouth and says, not only does she have too many baby teeth, she has too many adult teeth that want to come in behind these baby teeth. So, so he's looking at all of this, and he, he's, he's giving us all of this information about my eight-year-old daughter's mouth. Now let's imagine for a second that this man looks at us and says the following. Like, so we're having this conversation. We say, okay, she has too many baby teeth that aren't falling out, so he's telling us they need to be removed. And then you have all of these extra adult teeth. Some of them need to be removed. And we say, okay, well, let's go ahead and do that. And he says, oh, no, 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 we don't have to do anything about it. The fact that I gave you all of the information will somehow just miraculously mean that her mouth will self-correct. So you just need the information. Just go home with the information. Don't do anything about it. And somehow her mouth will self-correct. Ludicrous, right? 
the point of having all of the information, if you're an orthodontist, is to actually be able to do something to correct people's mouths. My son, many of you know, because I've brought this up in messages previously, uh, has foot problems. He was born with feet that need to be corrected, right? So we go to the orthopedist, straight skeleton, straight body structure, okay? So we go to the orthopedist, and once again, the orthopedist takes, all, takes an expensive picture, looks at it, gathers some information, then tells us we need to take a more expensive picture, and gathers all this information, then tells us we need a more expensive picture, so we do that, gathering all of this information, Why? So that we can just have the information. And so do I look at my son and say, here's the deal, Michael. We know everything about your feet. We know what's good about them. We know what's bad about them. We have gathered all of the information. We're all good, right? He goes, no, Dad, I'm still limping and I can't play soccer well because my feet are messed up. The point of the information is to do something with the information. And when I, when I talk about an orthodontist or I talk about an orthopedist, we are like, yes, that is very obvious. But for some reason in church world, this is not obvious to us because we like to talk about orthodoxy. And this is not the, the ortho for your number one blank, by the way, so don't write it in. You think it is, that's why you started writing it. Because most of us, if we're honest, would say, you know, going to church is all about hearing Getting my orthodoxy straight. In other words, believing the right set of things. So pastors get on a stage, and they study their Bible, and they tell me what I should believe about this book and what I believe about God. And as long as I have all of the facts in order, as, all of, as long as my belief system is right, I'm good to go. So as long as the preacher is preaching orthodoxy, and as long as I'm nodding at it, we're all good, right? No. We're not all right. Because the point of orthodoxy... Ready? Now here's your blank. No, you're waiting for it. Is, is orthopraxis. P-R-A-X-I-S. This is your big fancy word for the weekend. Okay? And I'm going to count to three. Everybody say orthopraxis. All four campuses. One, two, three. Very good. Now, at different times in my life, I have found myself coaching young soccer teams because all of my kids have played soccer. And I'm coaching kindergarten soccer for my daughter a few seasons ago. And these kids could not throw the ball incorrectly. And it was driving me nuts. I'm like, how do you teach a bunch of kindergartners how to throw the ball incorrectly in soccer? Like, you can't just chuck it with one hand. There are rules that govern how the ball gets replayed onto the field with a throw-in. And so I come up with a poem for these, these kindergartner kids, okay? And it was this. Two feet on the ground, two hands on the ball, straight over your head and let the ball fall. Make up this silly little poem to get them to throw the ball incorrectly. And all season long, I had them repeat this poem in practice. And even during the games, if they were going to throw in the ball, I would have them repeat the poem out loud so I could hear it so that by the end of the season, I knew if nothing else, these kindergarten kids knew how to throw the ball incorrectly. Now, last night during worship, I had a little poem pop into my head about orthopraxis. So this is fresh baked right here. You ready? <laughs> I know that your notes are crowded, but you want to write this two-line poem down. You ready? This is my shot at poetry. Don't just tell me what the facts is. What I really need is orthopraxis. <laughs> Thank you. We, we, there's a funny deception when it comes to faith life, following Jesus. And that is that just being around information makes us think that we really know it. And you know that's a very... American way of thinking. That is a trap of Western thought. Our ability to separate information from experience. You know, the rest of the world 
primarily does not struggle with this the way we do. We have the ability to have this area over here where we have information and knowledge and theory and abstract thought, and we put spirituality and theology and all of these things we talk about on the week, and we put it over here, and somehow we feel like just being around the conversation means that we know it. But the truth is, we don't really know it until we experience it in our lives. And that's a weird thought for Americans to say, no, I have all the facts about it. Yeah, but you don't really know it until it becomes a part of your experience. It's not just about orthodoxy, having a right set of beliefs. It's about orthopraxis. It's about that becoming a part of our experience as human beings. We don't really know until we experience, until we put it into practice. Uh, an example of this would be if you talk to Shadanke Johnson, who is one of our international partners who does ministry in Sierra Leone, and you ask him about the differences between the American church and the African church. One of the things he will say, and he loves the American church, he loves our church specifically, okay, so he's not dogging the American church, but he will say this. One of the biggest differences is that Americans, Americans have an information-based discipleship. Africans have an obedience-based discipleship. They don't even have a category for thinking about having the information but not doing something with it. To them, it's completely ludicrous. And so one of the obstacles we have to hurdle over before we even start talking about us praying together is recognizing that we have a fundamental problem, and that is we separate the two. And if nothing else, if I could bring the two more together this weekend, I'll call it a win. If we can take information and theory, God's revelation, and somehow pull it in closer to our everyday experience, I'll call that a win for all of us. All right, so let me just pile up a few thoughts here before we talk specifically about prayer. First thought is this. We are all theologians, and this is in your notes. We are all theologians. Say, no, I'm not. I never went to Bible college. I didn't go to seminary. We are all theologians. Every time, every time you make conclusions about God, even if your conclusion is he doesn't exist, you are doing theology. Every time you draw conclusions about who God is, what he's like, what he does, what he doesn't do, and every time you draw conclusions about how he interacts with humanity, whatever conclusions you're coming to, whether they are informed by this book or not, you are doing theology. So we are all theologians. The only question is, are you doing good theology or bad theology? But we're all theologians. You know, the joke is, what do you call somebody who graduated first in their medical class? Doctor. What do you call somebody who graduated last in their medical class? Doctor. Right? We're all theologians. The question is, are we good theologians or bad theologians? The second thought I want to pile on top of that is, there is an inherent link between what we believe and how we behave. You cannot separate the two. The way you function as a human being is based on a set of beliefs that you have, you hold. Beliefs about God, beliefs about what church is, what we should be doing, what we shouldn't be doing, what is important, what is not important. That's why we're doing a whole series called Church Matters. The, the, the fundamental question is, what are we doing when we gather together, and why are we doing it? And all of us have a whole bunch of opinions, right, about what we do when we gather. That's why we're going through this series. You're doing theology, and you just don't know it. And on top of that, your behavior is directly linked to the theology that you're doing. Here's an example. Uh, in student ministries, and I've been doing student ministries for a long time, 
I have come to, up to a few conclusions about what is fundamentally important about working with middle school students and high school students and college students. I can count them on one hand. The things that I would say are fundamentally important. Like, these are non-negotiable. These things must be happening in any student and ministry environment for it to be healthy. Now, there are other good things that could be added to that, but I have drawn the conclusion that there are certain things that are fundamental. Uh, so we train everyone that works in student ministries on three core skill sets. And we do it so much that I'm sure they start to roll their eyes at it. Like, really, you're going to train this again? And my answer to that always is, yeah, until we are all doing it, I'm going to keep saying it because it's not just about having the information and nodding at it. It's about it becoming a part of our experience. And so one of these core skill sets is 321, where we tell our student ministry leaders, every time you're with students, learn three new names, have two meaningful conversations, and pray with or for one student. And that, that one, praying with or for a student, is based on some theology where I fully believe in the work of the Holy Spirit. There is a Holy Spirit. I am not him. And I am simple enough to believe that if hundreds of adults are on a regular basis asking God to do something transformational in the lives of young people, that that would be a good day. And so I train on that. What I believe is directly linked to how I behave, and it's directly linked to how I ask all of the student ministry leaders to behave. The next thought is this, and this one comes from the fact that I watch a lot of HGTV. I love watching houses get demoed and remodeled. I think it's fantastic. All right, so here's this thought. Demolition comes before remodeling. Look at Romans chapter 12. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Okay, so this right here is telling us, hey, don't get trapped into letting you, don't get trapped into thinking about everything the way the world thinks about it, but let God change the way you think. Let God do a transforming work in your life. You'll start to think differently. You'll start to see things more the way God sees them. But for that to happen, for there to be remodeling going on, there also has to be some demolition of some ways we currently think about things. Do you know that all of us, myself included, there are certain, there are certain ways you think about church and faith life and God that are wrong? And you hold to it firmly, right? And have you ever gotten to the point in your life you're like, oh man, I used to think this way but now I think this way. And I actually fought for this viewpoint, but I have since changed my mind. Demolition comes before remodeling. This is like, this is like building a house of cards for some of us, especially when we're talking about the way we build theology, the way we build our belief system about how we think about God and how God interacts with us and what this whole church thing is. Here's what we do. It's, it's like building a house of cards, okay? So, we, you know, building a house of cards is very precarious, right? Like, you know when you're building it that this thing is not going to stand for long. You just know it. And so you build it, and you're being really careful. And so you, you build this thing. And then what happens eventually is that someone comes into the room. <gasps> right? And you're like, don't talk loud. Like, loud talking is somehow going to knock over the house of cards, right? You don't want them to step hard. You don't want them to breathe heavy. Why? Because you're concerned that somehow your house of cards is going to fall down. 
And so you don't want anyone near your house of cards. You don't want anyone breathing on your house of cards. You don't want anyone talking loudly at your house of cards. And we do this with our belief system about God. We're not sure why we think the way we think. If someone really pushes us a little bit or asks us some difficult questions, we're afraid that the whole house of cards is going to come tumbling down. And it scares us. And one of the things I want to do this weekend is I want to knock down some houses of cards. It's okay that you don't know everything. We don't know everything. Not one of us in this room. And there are some, there, every weekend we gather, there are things to be learned. There's some demolition to be done. There is some remodeling to be done. This is one of the things that God does to transform our lives. And so I'll, I want permission here. I'm going to do it anyways. I'm just asking you for mental permission is to knock down some of our houses of cards this weekend. A lot of us have some ideas about church and prayer life and what we do when we gather. And I would just ask that you hold it a little bit more loosely and let God's revelation be the primary thing that informs what we do when we get together. Okay? All right, last thought. And this isn't a thought as much as a bunch of questions. Now what I'd like to do is ask a whole bunch of confusing questions to knock down some card houses, all right? So let me ask you, let me just present a few scenarios, some questions that I have in my head and heart as well. Uh, hopefully this, what this will do is till the soil so that when we get to the point two about prayer, this seed can hit some fertile soil, okay? So here's a scenario. You know, the flu and pneumonia is going around, and I got pneumonia. So several weeks ago, uh, when my pneumonia was at its worst, was when the Ignite prayer meeting was going on. Okay, so it was a Sunday night, and I'm at home with pneumonia. Now, I live about 1.2 miles from the St. Charles campus where the prayer meeting was happening. Okay, just to put this in distance perspective. So it is not difficult for me to get in my car and drive here to that prayer meeting. So I'm at home with pneumonia. Let's look at this James verse because this informs some of my conflict. It says, is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Okay, and then the last part of that verse is, and that prayer will make you well. Okay, so here I am, as one of your pastors, at home, with pneumonia, sick. I know that verse. I also know that the elders are physically here. Our elders from every one of our campuses were physically here in this St. Charles Auditorium for a prayer meeting, and I'm 1.2 miles away from them. And I'm sitting at home, honest, honestly, going back and forth in my head, thinking thoughts like this. And while I'm doing this in my own head, what I'm really doing is theology. All right, should I go to the prayer meeting? I don't want to get anybody sick. I'm, I'm certain that nobody else wants pneumonia. Okay, so staying home is a nice thing to do. But I also know that verse, and I know the elders are in the room. So do I drive to the prayer meeting, grab a few of the elders, have them pray for me, and go back home? And then I think this thought. Well, lots of people on staff, lots of pastors, some of the elders already know I have pneumonia, so they're probably praying for me anyway. So is that enough? I draw the conclusion that that's enough, and I don't come to the prayer meeting. Some of you are looking at me very judgmentally right now, right? You weren't there either, and you didn't even have pneumonia. <laughs> That's theology. What I believe affects the way I behave. Now, I stand before you today still struggling with the effects of my pneumonia. I'm not fully well. 
I didn't follow that verse. I didn't put it into practice. Like, so yeah, like I, have, I still have a cough. I'm still very tired. I think I either pulled a muscle in my rib cage or cracked a rib coughing because it really hurts right here. Like, I have to go get it checked out. Okay. And the last night, a few of the elders came up to me after preaching this message with a, with a bottle of anointing oil. Said, all right, let's do this, dude, you know. But th- these, are, these are the kinds of questions we struggle with when we're talking about uh, prayer and what we're doing with this whole church thing. Let me ask you this question. Is praying together more powerful than praying separately? In other words, let's say the week of prayer, right? We hand out these weekly prayer guides, and we say, everybody pray through this stuff throughout the week. But to start the week, we're all going to gather in one place. And the question we have to deal with is, is gathering together somehow more effective or more powerful than us praying separately in our own homes? And whatever conclusion you draw to that question, which, by the way, when you draw a conclusion, you're doing theology. You just may not be doing it based on Scripture. You're doing theology, and you're making behavioral choices based on the conclusions you're drawing. Now, my my goal here is not to answer all these questions, but to throw them out here to just make the point that we're not really sure about all of this stuff. Or how about this one? Uh, You know when you're praying at a meal? I don't pray at every meal gosh, she doesn't pray at every meal, right? But when you're with other Christians, right, you feel that guilt, right? Like, I better pray for this meal, otherwise they will judge me, right? And your kids are at the meal going, yeah, right, you don't ever pray for the food. I get thanking God for the food. There's even some scriptural basis for the way we pray at meals, okay, with some of the stuff that was going on in the New Testament. So it has an origin. But if we're honest, a lot of us just repeat phrases that we've heard other people pray, and we're not even sure why we're praying it. This one, God bless this food to our bodies. What are you asking for? You're eating at five guys. <laughs> uh, honestly, do you, are you really praying that God would miraculously make that food more nutritious? <laughs> right, we're laughing about it. Because we've done it, we've prayed the prayer, it's somewhat mindless, we're not even sure what we're talking about, but we do it. And I want to dig at this a little bit, so that our orthopraxis, what we do as a body of believers when we gather, is actually thoughtful and scripturally informed. We know what we're doing, and we're doing it on purpose. How about this phrase, ready, I'm going to make fun of the pastors now. The pastors come up on the stage at weekend services, and I'm sure this happens at all four campuses. And this phrase often finds its way into the prayer when we're praying, when we're, we're worshiping God with our tithes and offerings. You know the phrase I'm about to say? God, multiply this offering for the furtherance of your kingdom. First of all, I have never heard any pastor in our church use the word furtherance outside of that prayer. <laughs> I don't ever go to the other youth pastor in church and say, let's talk about the furtherance of our ministry. What are we saying when we pray that? Do we really believe that if we all collectively give $20,000, that Jesus is going to wave a magic wand and turn it into $40,000? Now, I know the heart behind the prayer. We're, we're praying that we would put the money to good use, that we would be wise with how we, we, we distribute the funds and meet needs and help the poor and extend church ministries. I get all of that, but we use all of these phrases and we're not even sure why we use them. Or last, last question here. Actually, two more. What is up with laying hands on people? Right? Okay, so if I, if I lay my hand on somebody, as Scripture talks about, and pray for their healing, 
Is that more effective because I'm doing what I see in Scripture than if I remove my hand from their shoulder and pray the same prayer? Some of you drew a conclusion about whether or not I should have came to the prayer meeting to have the elders pray for me. But when I asked that question about specifically being obedient to what Scripture says about putting my hand physically on them, you might have drawn two different conclusions. Or this one. Right, we'll have someone on the stage and we'll say, everybody stretch your hand towards this person. So it's like a fake laying on of hands, right? It's a symbolic laying on of hands. What is that? Why do we do it? Is it somehow more effective? Am I being annoying enough yet? Because I really want to till the ground to really talk about prayer. This question was submitted. You know, we have this email account set up for this church series. And this, this question was submitted. Why do we sometimes pray to Jesus and sometimes to God? Good question. Is there a difference, would be my response question, between praying to the Son or praying to the Father? And for that matter, why don't we pray more to the person of the Holy Spirit? He's a part of the Godhead too. Right? So that question's pro- the Holy Spirit question is probably the more annoying question than why do we sometimes pray to Jesus and sometimes to the Father? Do you direct some prayers to the Father and some to the Son and some to the Holy Spirit? And how do I know which category is more effective? Right? Lots of questions that we could deal with. We're going to look to the Sermon on the Mount to deal with four tensions about prayer. Okay? To try to get some answers, not all of the answers, but some of them when we're talking about us as a church praying together. What are we doing when we're praying together and some of the tensions we struggle with? Okay, so point two in your notes, prayer. Let's talk about this first tension, which is separate versus solidarity, or your individual prayer life versus your prayer life with other believers. Now, let's look at this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. So Jesus says, look, when you gather together in the synagogues, or they would go to the temple, or, okay, so for us coming to Christ Community Church, when you gather, there are certain men And they like to stand up in front of people and impress people because they want people to think highly of them. So they they do these long-winded, fancy prayers, and the reason they're doing it is not a genuine desire to pray to God. It's not a genuine concern for the people. They're just showing off. They want people to see their big, fancy prayer, and other people look at them and go, well, that guy can pray good. (laughs) And Jesus says, don't be like that. In fact, if that's a temptation for you, just go home, and in the quietness And in the solitude, you talk to God. Is Jesus negating or somehow dismissing the gathering of believers to pray together? No. He never said, stop meeting together, stop praying together. He's getting at the heart of the matter. For centuries, believers in God have been gathering together under the direction of this to pray together. And so when you're dealing with the tension of what's more important, my individual prayer life or my corporate prayer life, praying with other believers, the answer is both. You cannot have one without the other. As Americans, we like the individual side because we're very individualistic. We just don't really get to the other side. And so we have to do some work on this side of it. A lot of us are scared to death to pray out loud with other people. And what I want to say is I get it. A prayer life is something you develop, but it's not okay to stay there. 
believers pray together. And so if coming to an Ignite prayer meeting scares the heck out of you because you don't want to pray with other people, what I would say is it's part of your discipleship process. You come and you learn how to pray with other believers because it's part of the life of the church. We pray together. Now, here is a deep thought, and we're going to move on to the next tension. You can have your individual prayer life without other believers. You cannot have the corporate prayer life without other people being around. Is that a deep thought? So why do I have to be here on a regular basis? Because we need to be around each other to pray for one another. If you go through your New Testament and you look at all of the coaching we receive on prayer, the vast majority of it requires being around other believers. You cannot, you cannot have a thriving, effective, obedient prayer life and not be around other believers. It just cannot be done based on what I see in the New Testament. We need to be around each other. Next tension here. Asking versus alignment. Okay, this is one where you can come, listen to one pastor preach on prayer, and he will preach on expectation. Praying in faith, looking for results, is prayer about asking. Or sometimes you'll hear a sermon on prayer, and, and a pastor will say something like this. Prayer isn't as much about you changing God's mind as much as about God changing your mind. In other words, when you pray, the vast majority of what is happening is you are changing as a person. So is prayer about asking God for stuff, for results, or is prayer about me aligning myself with God's will and desire? You know what the answer is? Both. It's both. It's about asking and about aligning. Let's look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 10 here through 13. This is the Lord's Prayer that we've already prayed together. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What are we doing when we pray that? We're, we're putting ourselves in a posture of alignment. God, I want your ways to be my ways. I want what you want to be what I want. I want to see your desires come to fruition in my, my world. We're aligning ourselves with God. That's part of what we do when we gather together every weekend. We are realigning ourselves. Let's be honest. We get all out of alignment throughout the week. And I don't believe anybody that says, I don't need the gathering of believers to stay aligned. And the reason I don't believe it is I need the gathering of believers to stay aligned. I need to be around you every week, week in and week out. Otherwise, my mind and my heart have a tendency to go astray. I don't believe it when people like, do this whole smoke screen like, well, as long as I have my private prayer life and I'm doing this and I'm doing that, what's the big deal? And what first thing I want to say is I don't believe you do. I think it's a smokescreen because I don't believe that we can do this individually. So it is about aligning, but it's also about asking. This goes on. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We are making requests to God that we expect for him to hear and respond to. We are aligning and we are asking. We are aligning and we are asking. It is both and. Next one. This tension, committed or casual? Here's another way to ask this question. Is prayer work or is it something that's just really casual because me and Jesus, we're like this, right? Jesus is my bud. He's my friend. And so I can just talk to him as if he's my buddy standing right next to me. So can I just you know, casually have conversations with Jesus or is there a discipline and a work to prayer? And the answer is both. On one hand, 
Prayer is work. You know it and I know it. And the reason we all know it is because when you're not at your best, your prayer life stinks. Right? There is a discipline and a work to prayer. You know why? Because prayer is so fundamental and foundational to the purposes of God being accomplished in our lives and in our church that there is a strong spiritual pushback against it. And so we can find ourselves living very prayerless lives, going through the motions of church without the power that would be infused into it if we were praying. It's work. It's hard. There, you know it because there are times you're like, I should be praying, but there's something else that's easier to do, and so you choose that thing because it's easier. And, you, and the, what elevates it in my mind to understand the discipline and the work required to have a consistent, thriving prayer life is that a lot of times the thing I choose to do in, instead of prayer is hard work. And that hard work is still easier than prayer. It is also true, though, that prayer is a, is a casual thing in that we don't have to impress God. We don't have to be fancy with our words. We don't have to prove anything to God to talk to him. Uh, look, at, look at this no, forget it. Yeah, let's look at this. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Right? So this is, this is the committed side of prayer. Because that is saying, really, keep asking, keep knocking, Keep seeking, keep asking, keep knocking, keep seeking. And sometimes we get frustrated because we say, God, I've already prayed this prayer twice and I'm a little bit ticked off that you haven't done anything about it. And Jesus would say, keep asking, keep knocking, keep seeking. There is a persistence and some discipline and some work involved in prayer. It is required. But we don't have to somehow worry that we need to conjure up anything or we need to use big fancy words, right? We just trust that God loves us and he's a good God. Committed versus casual. Last tension. Is prayer a placebo or should we really expect a product? Okay. One, of the, one of the questions that was submitted for this series is asking about us praying together, and, and this person said, I find that saying these prayers out loud in unison with a large group of believers is very comforting. And when I initially read that, there was a question attached to that. When I initially read that, my first thought was a very guy thought, and it was a very American thought, and it was a very individualistic thought, and it was a very results-oriented thought. It was this. Who really cares if you find comfort in us praying together? That's not why we do it. And then I took a step back and thought, you know what? That's a really dumb way to think about that. Because here's the truth. In my greatest moments of need, when I'm really struggling, there is great comfort in knowing that my church family cares about me enough to have my back, to go to the Father on my behalf, to lay a hand on me and pray, to seek God for me, to tell them they love me, to tell me that they're with me, and there is great comfort in that. So in that sense, yeah, there is some, there is like a relational placebo effect to prayer that is undeniable. But there is also 
a product to prayer. There are results that we can expect when we pray. We're not just doing some kind of mythical fairy tale firing up to the ceiling stuff that's bouncing off of it. There is a God who loves us and hears us and has everything he needs, the ability to respond to our prayers. Now look at this part of the Sermon on the Mount. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Next verse, guys. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? We trust that God loves us and hears us and he wants to give us good gifts if we ask. What is Jesus saying here? You can expect results. You can expect a product when you pray. Here are a few brief examples. I was, I was at a choir performance with my son. He was performing at St. Charles North High School with his middle school choir. And I'm getting ready to go into the auditorium. And someone comes up to me who is on our weekend prayer team. So they pray with people after the services. And they said, oh, man, i got to share this story with you. A woman came up and said, I have chronic foot pain. For as long as I can remember, I've had excruciating pain when I walk. And this man laid his hand on her and prayed for her. And she walked away. And she walked immediately back and said to the man, for the first time since I can remember, I have no pain in my foot. Now, some of us are like, of course, right? You have experience with that. You've seen God heal people. Some of you are like, yeah, I don't believe that. I'd like to talk to the woman right now to see if the pain returned, right? You're very skeptical about this, right? But that man told me that. I'm like, man, that's great. That's why we pray, because God is good. And I don't understand why sometimes healing happens and sometimes it doesn't. That's not for me to completely know, because I'm not God. But I've seen enough results from prayer to know that prayer works. Uh, here's another an example in my life. Several months ago, I was preaching a weekend here. And I was at a place, I don't know if you've ever gotten to a place where you were just physically, emotionally, and spiritually done. Like, there was nothing in my tank. Like, I was spent, broken. Like, and it wasn't, and I was thinking to myself, how am I going to preach this weekend? And it wasn't that the topic was a difficult topic to preach. So it wasn't like, oh God, this is a really tough one to preach. It, I don't think it was. I don't even remember what the topic was. I just, if I was alone and thinking, I was weeping. Like broken like that. Have you ever been in a place like that? And I had to preach. They were going to strap a microphone to my head and ask me to talk for 40 minutes. And I knew I can't do it. If I get up there, I will look at thousands of people and I will just cry. That's not okay, right? So I'm coming to church, and this weird thought enters my head. And here was the thought. You need Frank Nicodem to pray for you. Now, if you don't know, Frank Nicodem is Pastor Jim's father. And I don't know Frank very well. In fact, I'd probably, at that point in my life, only had two conversations or three conversations with Frank Nicodem. It has a very random thought to pop into my head. And so I come to church, we do all of our sound checks, we do all of that. Before every service, we gather in groups of three and we pray for 15 or 20 minutes. Lo and behold, who comes and sits in my little prayer group? Frank Nicodem. You've got to be kidding me. So we pray in the group and we get done praying. And I look at Frank and I couldn't even get the words out of my mouth, barely. I just said, Frank, you have got to pray for me. And he knew what I was saying. And he gave me this big bear hug, and he just stood there, and he prayed for me for two or three minutes, seeking God on my behalf. And he was done, and he walked that way, and I walked over here 
to the front row and sat in the front row of the auditorium, and I was weeping, like snot coming out of my nose. I'm messing up my shirt like a broken state. And I'm thinking to myself while I'm, while I'm sitting over there because I'm thinking to myself, one, I still can't preach, and second, he's not done praying for me. There is more work to be done here. I didn't say another word to Frank, but Frank returned about 60 seconds later. And he laid his hand on me, and he prayed for me for about 10 minutes. And that empowered me enough to preach the weekend sermon. Now, was that prayer comforting? Was it nice to know that there were some people here that, that will pray faith-filled prayers expecting God to move? Yeah, it's really comforting. And did it provide results? Yes, it did. Because you didn't know I was a wreck that weekend. I was able to teach God's word. When we pray together, it is part of the life of the church. We cannot sideline our corporate prayer lives and just go through the mechanics of this. And it's like, you know, we always say playing church. Well, guess what? We got to knock down our house of cards a little bit. If we don't really focus on some of this stuff, we really are just playing church. So now let's talk about some nuts and bolts here. Some nuts and bolts of a corporate prayer life. Here is the big thought. All of that to ask you this question. Would you be willing to come every weekend as a participant? Come as a participant. Here's the alternative to coming as a participant. You come as an observer and you evaluate. Okay? If you come as a participant, what you're doing is you're coming with the mindset, I am intentionally coming this weekend on purpose to gather with other believers. I am going to worship. Whether those songs are your favorite songs or not is not the point. And to evaluate a worship service based on the performance of the band is not participating, it's observing. When we come, I come to worship. If I don't dig the songs, I stand. Some songs I like to sing, some I don't. So I will stand there and I will worship God whether I'm singing or not. I'm worshiping, I'm in unison with other believers, I'm focusing on the lyrics, I'm praying quietly where I'm standing, I'm worshiping God. To walk out of a service and to make the personal choice to not participate and to not worship, but then evaluate the worship service as if somehow you're not involved in it is a little bit misguided. When God watches our gathering, he's not judging the performance of the band. He's looking at a group of people saying, do I have their hearts? Does this group, is this group of people, have they gathered to focus on me and worship me? And to the extent that each of us as an individual can answer that question in the affirmative is the, the extent to which we can say yes collectively. We come as a participant. All right, so if you don't want to come as a participant, instead of handing you a weekly welcome, I have this suggestion. We could just start handing out scorecards in the lobby, <laughs> right? And you can just come and hold up numbers for the band and whether or not the verbals guy did an okay job and whether or not the preaching entertained you or not, right? 9.7 for the sermon. What the heck was the announcement person talking about, right? If we don't come as a participant, our church involvement on the weekend becomes that, and it's gross. Come as a participant. So let me walk through all of the different ways we pray together when we're gathered. And you can evaluate whether or not you're participating in the prayer life of the church. Prayer during worship, 
A pastor comes out, we read prayers off of the screen, we pray together in the context of worship. What are we doing when we do that? We're often confessing sin together. We're often committing ourselves to God's purposes. We're often claiming promises that we see in the Bible for our lives as individuals and as a church body. And it's important that we do that together. This is not just rote, let's read things off of a screen. When we do that, we are praying together. We pray for our impact partners. Every weekend, we briefly highlight one of our community impact partners or one of our international partners, and we pray for them. If you want to participate in that prayer, don't just mindlessly sit in your seat and let the pastor pray and just kind of ignore it as if it's an unimportant transitional part of the service. It's not. If we didn't think it was important, we wouldn't be doing it. You know, some of us look at the, you look at the, the tagline to, the, to the, the, seri- the teaching series, 80 indispensable minutes together. Well, what makes 80 minutes the right amount of minutes? We're not claiming 80 minutes is like the magical right number for a worship service. We just looked at all the things in Scripture that believers ought to be doing when we gather together. Said, how do we do them all well in a meaningful way, and how long does that take us? Okay, it's not a right or wrong thing the length of time. It's just if we want to do all these things we think believers ought to be doing when we're together, this is about how long it takes us. If other people can do it shorter or longer, whatever. All right. So we pray for the impact partners. Let me just give you a few hints on how to participate well with this. Use your imagination. Put yourself in their shoes. If you were doing what they are doing, how would you want people to be praying for you? And when the pastor is on the stage praying, you pray for them as well. Additionally, if you have the spiritual gift of a prayer language, often called speaking in tongues, you can just quietly, there in the quietness of your seat, use your prayer language to pray for our partners. Don't stand up and cause distraction and draw attention to yourself, but utilize the spiritual gift that has been placed inside of you to pray for other believers. The next one, prayer for our offering. Why in the world do we read a scripture and pray for our offering when we're giving our money? Are we just trying to spiritualize something to make people give more money? No. We are praying genuinely that we would use our resources in a God-honoring way, and it takes a lot of wisdom and a lot of focus and a lot of intentionality, and it takes a lot of work of the Spirit to get our hearts to be less selfish and more generous, and so we pray about it every week. You know why? Because if we don't persistently pray about that every week, I don't think the results would be good. So we join in that prayer. We pray before we teach. Why? Because one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to be our teacher. The Spirit of God helps us understand the revelation of God. And so it is foolish to try to teach this and expect that we will all understand it with our little pea brains unless the Spirit of God is doing a work in our lives. So we pray that God would do that. So when we're praying before the sermon, you could be praying for yourself. God, I received that too. I want the Spirit of God to help me understand this and for everybody else in our gathering. We pray to end the service. I can't speak for Jameson or Jim, but when I pray to conclude a service, or I can't speak for the the campus pastors, but in my prayer to conclude every service, somehow in there is that the Spirit of God would empower us and remind us to do the things we talked about. Otherwise, this is all just a charade. So we do that. We have kneelers in all of our auditoriums. I know where they are at St. Charles. I think I know where they are at DeKalb. I'm pretty sure I know they're at Blackberry Creek. I have no idea where they are at Bartlett. But I know they're there. They're there so that you could take a few extra minutes after service and pray through some of the stuff that you feel like God is working in your life. We have a prayer team available after every service. If you have any kind of need, you go pray with another believer. You present their request. They're standing. They're like 10 feet away from you when we conclude services. To not avail yourself to that is a little bit nuts. Now, I'm guilty of that, right? I'm the guy 
who is a teaching pastor who stayed at home during a prayer meeting because I had pneumonia. So I'm guilty of that, but let's not all be guilty of that. Last one here. Prayer with elders on communion weekends. Every communion weekend, you can rest assured that the elders are there and ready to pray for you for healing at the end of a communion service. Now, you can call the elders at any time if you, if you want a prayer to be healed. And don't feel like you're inconveniencing them. I, trust me. They deal with enough garbage and enough conflict as the elders. They deal with enough hard stuff that going to somebody's house to pray and anoint them with oil would be like the highlight of their week. Okay, so please do not feel like if you're a part of this church family, that's why the elders, one of the things the elders do. So you call the elders to pray for you. Now the challenge, and we'll be done. Because we can listen to all this and nod, right? But that's orthodoxy. I'm going for orthopraxis. If this doesn't become a part of who we are as a church family, then what the heck is the point of it all? So here's a challenge for all of us. Some of you are going to think this challenge is really low because you already do it. Some of you are going to think it's really high because you don't do any of it. And so to whatever extent it's a challenge for you, great. I'm going to call this the 4-3-2-1 challenge. Here it is. The four is that you commit to coming to church the next four weekends in a row. Some of you are like, that's no big deal. Some of you are thinking, oh my gosh. Here, here's, the, here's the data. You ready for the data? We can count heads in the auditoriums and know how many people were at church. It's hard to figure out patterns of attendance. So the only way we can really track patterns of attendance is by using Kids World Check-In. If we use the Kids World Check-In to determine how, how many weekends out of a month the average family is at a worship service, the answer is two. That says something. And that's not a guilt trip, but that says something about whether or not we think this is a good thing or we think it is a high-priority thing. Because we find space for the things we think are high priority. So come four weekends in a row, the three is learn three new names. This is the student ministries thing I talked to you about already. Okay? Learn three new names. You sit around people, you probably sit in the same place normally at a service. And chances are you've been sitting there for months, if not years, and you still don't know the names of the people sitting around you. So when we do turn and greet, or before service, or after service... Learn three new names every week you're at church and see if you can remember them for next weekend when you come. Because this is a group of people. This isn't just a solo sport. The two have two meaningful conversations. Here's the definition for a meaningful conversation. We can get to a third question very easily with somebody. What's your name? What do you do for a living? Where do you go to school? How long have you been coming to Christ's community, right? You get to about the fourth question, you're like, oh, all right, see ya. Fourth question. Just get to a fourth question. That's a meaningful conversation. That's what we'll call a meaningful conversation, all right? So three names, two meaningful conversations, and then the last one is about prayer. Pray with or for one person. If praying with somebody out loud is too intimidating for you right now, we'll give you a bit of a pass. Eventually, we're going to nudge you to get over that, and I hope you do get over it and just go for it. But just identify somebody and just silently pray for them while you're here. Here's my email address. Write it down, because if you are really going to do this 4-3-2-1 challenge, I just want you to send me an email, okay, so I can track who's doing this and who isn't. There will be prizes involved. <laughs> I will personally show up at every campus to deliver prizes for anybody that completes this challenge. I swear to you, I am going to do that. 
Send me an email at subject line 4321 challenge. I'm in. That's all you have to do, okay? And I will be corresponding with you, and there will be prizes at the end of this. Orthopraxis. If we're not going to do something about it, let's not talk about it. Amen? Yeah. All right. At this time, campus pastors, it is all yours at your campuses. And the rest of you here, stand to your feet. Uh, Lord Jesus, we do now pray uh, that your spirit would not only remind us of these things, but empower us and give us the courage to act on them, to make them more a part of our lives so we can be more like the people you've created us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.